I'm your host Kota, and welcome back to the second inaugural episode of Against Japanism podcast, Destabilizing Japanese History from the Left. For this episode, I am excited to have two wonderful guests, Kazuma Hashimoto and Andrew Kia, join me to discuss The Ghost of Tsushima, a video game produced by the US based Sucker Punch Studio. And its Orientalist representation of the samurai. I will let them introduce themselves in interview, but both Kazuma and Andrew are doing really great work critiquing video games, highlighting that cultural commodities like video games are never ideologically neutral, and writing about social issues in Japan for the English speaking audience. But before I formally introduce the episode, I want to take some time to explain the terminology we use a lot in this interview, that is, Orientalism, and the international situation that shapes this ideology in the world today. The theory of Orientalism was first developed by a Palestinian American scholar and author Edward Said to critique how the classical Western literature and the modern day Western media represent. In a semi fictional and idealized manner, the East, that is, peoples and places of Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East, as exotic, uncivilized, and barbaric. This theory was particularly effective in critiquing how Arab and Muslim people are represented in the media and Hollywood films as terrorists and dangerous criminals. Especially after 9 11. But its framework of analysis was later expanded to analyze the representation of non Western societies and non white people at large. The problem with Orientalism, though, is not simply that the representation of these peoples and places are inaccurate and frankly racist, but that it informs the actions and behaviors of individuals. And the states in real life. We saw this recently in the grotesque racist massacre of nine Asian women in Atlanta, Georgia, by a white man who claims to have sexual addiction and that his motive was to eliminate the object of his sexual desire, as it were, implying that these women were mere sexual objects, not human beings, reinforcing the exoticized. And sexualized image of Asian women. However, we have to remember that Orientalism and anti Asian racism don't exist in a vacuum. Orientalism itself is an ideological byproduct of centuries of Western imperialism and colonialism that has plundered and colonized the non Western world, including the indigenous societies of North America. And it has legitimized and continues to legitimize the imperialist plunder and exploitation of the global south by the global north, as well as settler colonialism in Canada, US, Australia, and New Zealand. But when we talk about the Orientalist representation of Japan, we have to be careful because Japan as a country or nation state is not a victim of Western imperialism. While Japanese people, as individuals and communities living in a diaspora, 
can be victimized by anti-Asian racism, like the members of Nikkei communities who were interned during the World War II. The Japanese state, as a representative of the Japanese ruling class, continues to deny the atrocities it committed in Asia. With the support of an army of right-wing activists and online trolls acting as their shock troops. Japan today is still an imperialist nation, collaborating with the U.S. imperialism and pursuing neo-colonial policy in the global south, while competing with Chinese imperialism and promoting its own brand of anti-Asian racism against Chinese, Korean, and other Asian peoples. So this is the international context in which we will be discussing the ghost of Tsushima in this episode with Kazuma and Andrew. We discuss how the ghost of Tsushima's mythological and ahistorical representation of the samurai as chivalrous warriors bound by honor, not unlike how white supremacists see themselves as the modern-day knights and Nordic Vikings, as a product of and reinforces the ideologies of Japanese imperialism and fascism. We discuss how the video game appropriates the work of Kurosawa Akira, and how this orientalist representation of Japan is transposed across genre to another video game, Cyberpunk 2077, and repackaged and exported to the rest of the world by the Japanese state as the Cool Japan Initiative, and how the ideology of orientalism, weaponized by the Japanese state and the Japanese far-right alike, is turned against progressive social activists in Japan. And Kazuma and Andrew themselves, who are bravely confronting the legacies of Japanese imperialism and fascism with the weapon of cultural criticism. Because of their principled anti-imperialist and anti-fascist stance, they face constant online harassment and questioning of the authenticity of their Japanese nationality, which is just absurd and shows how Orientalism and the idealized notion of Japanese-ness are deeply interconnected. So if you like what they have to say, make sure to support their work included in the show note. Finally, we conclude our discussion by talking about whether video games can be a medium to promote radical politics and act as a vehicle for social change. Overall, I had a great time talking to them, even though it was my first podcast interview ever, and I was a bit nervous. I must admit, I couldn't quite articulate what I wanted to say and ended up editing out a lot of what I said in the interview. But through the process of editing this episode, these ideas became more lucid. And some of these ideas are included in the intro episode that I published earlier. So please check that out if you haven't yet. I'm also happy to say that this podcast is now live on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or contact me directly at againstjapanism at gmail.com. Your feedback and suggestions will be hugely appreciated. Without further ado, here is the Against Japanism interview with Kazuma Hashimoto and Andrew Kia. Enjoy. My name is Kazuma Hashimoto. I am a half-Japanese trans man. I am also a, a full-time translator and media critic and cultural consultant. 
Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm also a half Japanese uh, bi man, and I currently live in Tokyo as a、uh, writer. I write about Japanese social issues as well as video games. Great.、Uh, thanks to both of you for coming on to the show. So, what is the Ghost of Tsushima? I don't play video games anymore. Like, I haven't played since I was like early teenager. And so, for me and other listeners who don't know what it is, can you explain what it is and why did you decide to write about it? Uh, sure. So, Ghost of Tsushima is an action adventure game that takes place during a very specific period of Japan that Sucker Punch Studios has decided to fictionalize.、Um, you play、uh, Jin Sakai,、uh, a young samurai who has to fight back against an invading Mongolian horde to basically protect his honor as a samurai and to save his uncle. Um, I think it's Lord、uh, Shimura, right, Andrew? Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, okay.、Uh, if I miss anything, Andrew, you can go ahead and fill some stuff in. I think you know the year that the game is supposed to take place in. I try to not think about that game anymore.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it takes place in the year of 1271 or 74. I'm not quite sure.、Uh, yeah.、Um, So, I specifically、uh, got approached by Polygon to write about it because I had a Twitter thread sort of talking about、uh, pro imperialist propaganda in relation to the iconography of the samurai,、uh, which I had talked about in pretty lengthy detail in relation to an illustration that had been commissioned by the LDP to portray Shinzo Abe and、uh, other members of the administration as、uh, samurai. Cool. So, in the article, Kazuma, you quote, Director of the game, Nate Fox, saying the game is inspired by、uh, Akira Kurosawa. The game even allows you to play in a black and white, quote unquote, Kurosawa mode. Does the game live up to Kurosawa's legacy?、Um, it、uh, lives up to the legacy about as much as any normal black and white film can be because that's about as close as it gets to being a Kurosawa film. Its narrative and its message.、Uh, I'm just going to be really frank. You can tell it's written by white people that have envisioned this idea of the samurai that haven't exist. And even visually, their black and white mode is kind of washed out. Andrew played it too.、Um, and I think I watched you stream a little bit of it in Kurosawa mode. And it's.、Um, they didn't properly adjust the brightness and contrast for the filter itself. So even then, it, it doesn't even look. As nice as a Kurosawa film. So I'd say no, it doesn't live up to the legacy at all. I, I think to add on to that, the thing about the black and white was that really what they really just, just did is take the base game, which is colored, and take the saturation down to zero when they don't take into account the fact that a lot of the times black and white films, a major part of it was lighting. To make sure that it was contrasty enough for people that were watching the film to figure out what things. Are being shown, and they didn't take that into account, so it feels very flat, is one of the key issues that I had personally. It also affects the gameplay because there are instances in the game where you have to follow like leaves, like, like Momiji leaves somewhere, and you can't actually follow them properly because you can't see the color of anything, so it's completely counterintuitive to the actual mechanics of the game as well. Yeah, that's interesting.、Uh, so it seems、uh, purely formalistic and superficial. 
And Kurosawa is just a cold word for black and white, basically. Yeah, it's just sort of like, are there samurai in it? Is it feudalistic? Uh, is it black and white? And that's basically it. Or just in general, are there samurai in it? So therefore, it must be Kurosawa. What about the content of or the theme of a lot of Kurosawa's films? Do you think the game respects that or understands it? I'd say no. Like a pretty hard no. I think it really mishandles the... Well, I don't even think... It feels like somebody watched Seven Samurai but didn't understand the class disparity and the overall theme and message of the game. They just kind of looked at it, said, ooh, Samurai cool, and then made a game. It's like they passively consumed the, the movie's aesthetics without actually reading into the to the message of what those films were trying to say. So it's very, in my personal opinion, it's not even aesthetically similar to Kurosawa. Uh, it seems like someone who doesn't really know much about film's interpretation of what Kurosawa would look like. So in those senses, I don't think it's accurate at all. How is Samurai represented in the game? Do you think it's historically accurate or it's entirely something else? It's basically just pro-imperialist propaganda, and I don't think that Sucker Punch did this intentionally. I just don't think they cared enough about actual Japanese history to interrogate the uh, modern representation of the samurai in Japanese culture. Basically, the samurai you meet in Gosu Tsushima are... It's it's the ideology that was used by um, the Japanese Imperial Army. So, like, this whole chivalric Bushido code that never, like, actually existed. And that's sort of what the character represents. And it's, like, a completely warped ideal. And there's, like, some mentions of, like, the samurai taking advantage of the people and not being super great, but the game doesn't portray them as what they were, and that's, you know, extremely violent landlords who were just oppressive to, like, the peasantry and whatnot. You can probably expand upon that, Andrew. Um, I think in the sense, uh, what I like to compare it as is, um, I think in, like, the 1980s, the image that Americans had for English knights, right? The knight in shining armor, the the always chivalrous uh, soldier or warrior that's basically what the samurai have been portrayed as in in ghosts of tsushima and in basically a lot of i think orientalist media in the past 20 years um and so that's the way that they're presented like cause said it's uh entirely inaccurate um 100 false like the the warriors back in the the 13th century uh, were not like the way that they, they're portrayed in Ghost of Tsushima. They were horrible, brutal warriors that were that knew how to kill. And if you read the the documents from back then, obviously the things that the samurai did uh, were not the things that you would expect, quote unquote, samurai to act like in in mainstream media. But that's the way that it's presented. I'd say it's pretty comparable to like how they portray the samurai in The Last Samurai. Honestly, the more the more I think about it, it, it it's very oh like that. definitely. Yeah. These are the last of an honorable breed of men that will die for their ideals and the true state of their country. Mm-hmm. Yep. Andrew, on that note, you write in your article that the game plays a delicate balancing act between true-to-life historical nonfiction and myth-making. Myth-making seems like really important. You know, it's all about mythologizing the actual history. Exactly. I think, um, I guess to expand on that, 
the thing that the games really do get obviously though by the way that it was um advertised in trailers leading up to its release was that it's a accurate recreation or remodeling of tsushima uh, they actually went there and they did all of their research and and you know modeled the terrain and actually put in real life locations in the game that's that's basically the only part of the game that is true to life and historical obviously you, have, you also have the way that it was portrayed as in like it was in a time period that not a lot of games have done before the kamakura era and they kept saying like oh it's very realistic we based it off of an actual invasion that happened those are the things that were used in the marketing of the game but at the same time they have all these myths like again the way that samurai acted back then this thing about honor uh, the word honor is used so many times in so much dialogue in the game when in reality back then samurai didn't even have a unified code of honor they didn't have this concept of honor they just killed people for a living so that type of mixing causes is basically what propaganda does and i don't think sucker punch did that propaganda on purpose but they definitely recreated those types of propaganda that uh, like cause said before existed during world war ii and were used to brainwash japanese people and soldiers so that's what i meant by i guess balancing those two things can you talk about the history of Bushido or the concept of Bushido? So the Bushido that we know today um, isn't actually the Bushido code that existed during that era because, as Andrew said, it, it didn't exist yet in that form. The Bushido code that uh, referencing in Ghost of Tsushima was actually written by an author whose name I will put up, pull up right now. As I said, I try to wipe my mind of this game because it was just so bad. Uh, Inazo Nitobe was the person that implemented and interpreted this new Bushido code, and it was basically written in English to convince Westerners that the Japanese were just as civilized as Western and Central Europe, right? So the history of the Bushido Code has been pretty severely warped, and what it is now is effectively what a lot of people perceive or view it as in modern history. And it, it sort of remained that way, uh, especially during before World War II and post-World War II. And you see this a lot in relation to the iconog the general iconography of the samurai or the way the samurai are portrayed in modern media, um, not just within the West, but also within Japan, as that also plays into the idea of like history revisionism, that they're sort of rewriting their history to make it more palatable or lean to this idea of nationalism that portrays Japan in a very specific light. 100% agree with what Kaz just said. Essentially... I think in addition to to what Inazo Nitobe uh, wrote, there was also Hagakure, which was another uh, piece that was written by basically uh, a samurai family in the Edo period. Uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure both of you know, uh, samurais by the time the Edo period rolled around uh, weren't really the fighting type. They were more about meditating and thinking about life, basically. And so... This idea of this um, this samurai as a as a cold, you know, a warrior that waits for the time to strike and writes poetry, for example, those things are also again uh, things that weren't uh, widespread even during the Edo period. Uh, Hagakure was, you know, actually banned. It wasn't supposed to be written uh, uh, read uh, by regular people, and so. You have to wait until, for example, the, the Meiji period to roll around 
for it to come back into Japan uh, through America, which is apparently what a lot of these these types of, I guess, orientalist forms of media actually did to become widespread in Japan and, and, and known. Uh, so the whole thing about this this type of Bushido ideology even existing back in the 13th century would be basically impossible, right? And so that's another inaccuracy there to point out, I guess. It seems like the tendency is to sort of the typical uh, nationalist trope is to see history as continuous uninterrupted flow you know the emperor is supposed to be the founding family and you know the unbroken lineage for thousands of years you know it's all continuity you know yeah like the the idea that one thing would always exist like the the idea of bushido has always existed in the japanese psyche i guess is what these types of people want to think but you know they are actually very recent developments that were basically ignored uh, for most of Japan existing as a country. On that note, how was the game received in Japan? <laughs> I think uh, I think Kaz can tell us about the uh, the Famitsu scores. <laughs> so everyone always links back to this one Kotaku piece that linked all of the scores and reception for a Ghost in Japan. And there's something that I feel like people that listen to this podcast won't know about Famitsu specifically. Um, you can pay to get a perfect score in Famitsu. Square Enix has done that for years. So when Ghost of Tsushima gets a perfect score, people trot that out and say, oh, the reception's so good, it's amazing. But if you actually read the Famitsu review, they say, oh, well, you know, it was like pretty decent. It's a clearly like inaccurate representation of like Japan, but it's so beautiful and it looks great and it's very cool. Um, and overall, in relation to media reception, that has sort of been uh, the overall like um, reception uh, to the game through 4Gamer, Dengeki, and Famitsu. Um, a lot of websites seem to like it, but they also seem to acknowledge that, oh, you know, it's this is made by white people, and they did a pretty decent job. And that's really it. That's really all they've had to say. Um Andrew, you actually were keeping a pulse on social media in relation to who really liked the game, and you found someone very interesting yes. that, liked, that really liked Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah, so uh, I like to keep my eyes on Twitter, and I was looking at basically the reception of Ghost of Tsushima on Japanese Twitter basically a few, for a few weeks after it released, and one of the, uh, the accounts that actually caught my eye was a, a Twitter account very, very uh, well-known for having uh, alt-right takes on things. Um, primarily, I think, since two years ago, since 2019. And uh, he's a professor, or actually a former professor at Todai, or uh, I think teaching assistant at Todai. And he started his own uh, startup, and what happened was the, f the first controversy was that he refused to hire any Chinese people because he thought that Chinese people weren't as smart uh, as Japanese people. And so that kind of started his whole far-right career or far-right influencer career. Uh, and from then, basically, he, he actually uh, started playing Ghost of Tsushima. He started live streaming, actually. Uh, and he loved the game. And one of the things that he said was that Ghost of Tsushima was a game about Koreans and Chinese trying to invade Japan. 
Uh, he specifically said far left Korean and Chinese people trying to invade Japan and uh, the samurai beating them back, right? And that's why he liked the, the game. So we could, I, I, that example that I found was a very clear, clear example to me that um, essentially fascists, Japanese fascists, are loving the game. They like what the message is. And that's, that's the message that at least they're getting is the thing. Yeah, it seems almost inevitable in a story of so-called the Great Conflict that Nate Fox talks about. He says, quote, We picked this historical period because it provides a great conflict for people to immediately conceptualize. The fantasy is that you are a samurai. The conflict is this foreign invasion. And the stakes were very real. It, he almost kind of takes it for granted, right? Like, people can immediately uh, identify with great invasion by foreigners. Like, it's a sort of, like, uh, almost primordial fear slash ideology, you know, nationalist ideology that's ingrained in people's mind. I would honestly say that in itself, that entire sentence about the fantasy is that you're the samurai or, and the conflict is this foreign invasion. That really just is Nate Fox saying that they're lazy writers and they don't know how to write a proper conflict, right? They're relying on, like you said, these this primordial fear of this outside other to kind of rile up people and be like, yeah, you can go kill them. You know, you, you are this strong warrior that is defending, you know, your piece of land from, from the invaders, right? That is really kind of a, a lazy way to write a game. And that's actually one of the things that I would criticize most about Ghost of Tsushima. I think I mentioned it in my, in my article that the game is basically in line with games like Call of Duty, specifically like Modern Warfare, where you're this American soldier, this American superhero, essentially, shooting and killing brown people in the Middle East, right? Or in Vietnam or in anywhere else. Like, it's the same exact themes and it's the same exact antagonist and protagonist uh in those two games right thematically they're almost exactly the same and i and i think keeping that message right uh those games were made in like what mid 2000s to 2010 keeping in line with that even though it's been a decade and we've been through you know so much and realized that maybe we shouldn't be bombing countries in the middle east Right to keep making that type of game just with a with a Japanese new fresh coat of paint on it is really it's disrespectful. It's it's I feel like it's irresponsible of Sucker Punch to be doing this in 2020, right? I think what's also important in that regard too is you have to look at who's writing, directing, and producing the game, and this is an American studio, and what you just described is American military exceptionalism, like to a T. Yeah, indeed. And uh, it's not just a video game. It's I think it's popular culture in general and how that imperialist ideology is, uh, is reinforced. So, Kazma, you published a piece recently about Cyberpunk 2077, and it is about Orientalism also. How is this uh, Orientalist trope and myth-making transposed across genres? So, one thing to note is that the cyberpunk genre, like its foundations, are inherently Orientalist. Because the genre is a dystopia in which the foundations have been created on the economic anxieties of America being taken over by Japan, right? 
And Cyberpunk 2077 kind of crystallizes this and maintains that in relation to the Arasaka Corporation, which serve as the main antagonist for not only the tabletop, but in the game itself. Um, later on in the tabletop, like the most recent iteration, Cyberpunk Red, Arasaka isn't in power, but that's because the company was actually nuked. Like they legitimately, in this source material, nuked a Japanese company. And I, I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. Um, but it it's effectively like yeah it's re- there's absolutely horrible taste it's just really bad but it it sort of perpetuates uh, this orientalist and xenophobic idea of Japanese people uh, while also portraying that sort of fictionalized uh, romanticized version of like an honorable Japanese man or like a samurai uh, in relation to is it uh, Takemura Andrew Goro yeah I sorry think his name is yeah. That's his uh, name. Yeah, him. Yeah. Um, and how they choose to portray uh, Saburo Arasaka's daughter. And it... It's sort of like... It just goes in a circle. Like, nothing changes and it sort of continues to be this way because people like it. People like the idea of cool Japan, so they've completely forgotten the origins of the genre and just enjoy this being perpetuated to live out their orientalist fantasies of... Uh, being this like hyper like macho cool street samurai warrior who says fuck you to the system that adheres to the bushido code without actually knowing what any of that means <laughs> yeah that's um that's pretty distressing I, I really kudos to you for going through these games and analyzing it and someone has to do it and i think it's really important work i think cultural criticism can be a weapon in exposing you know these ideologies and biases and show them as what they really are and sort of a a way to learn about the real world. But yeah, so all this orientalist and xenophobic tropes packaged as Cool Japan, can you speak about what it is and how it ties into what we've been talking about in this interview? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I actually lived through the Cool Japan initiative because I was living in America at that time. Um, and it was basically like, Andrew and I were talking about this quite extensively because we were sort of going through the motions of playing 2077 (laughs) alongside each other. Um, and it was basically an initiative spearheaded by the Japanese government to sort of repaint the image of Japan, uh, which America had become super afraid of in the 1980s and when the bubble period like popped. Uh, They weren't afraid of Japan anymore, so Japan was like, okay, so we can reinvent our image to make it look more palatable to Westerners in the form of uh, cultural exports like anime, manga, video games, music. Like, when I was living in America, um, this was in, like, the mid-2000s, manga was everywhere, Uh, Deer and Grey was on MTV, like, J-Rock was on MTV, Um, and Anime Expo had, like, half a million people going to it every year. Like, it was huge. People really cared about this, like, uh, this sort of cool Japan, right? And what it propagates. And it did get a lot of people interested in, you know, like, Japanese culture and cultural exports. But at the same time, uh, it has effectively washed away or pushed aside facets of history that have continued to affect media for generations. Andrew can probably outline this super well, too, because we've been talking about this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my theories is actually that uh, 
what cause just described is also one of the main reasons why you see so many you know all members of the alt-right in the u.s also be very uh, interested in or obsessed with the japanese cultural exports that were brought by cool japan and there's a there's a very distinct link there to basically people that uh, obsess over this idealized image of japan uh, as this cool samurai society that you know is perfect in every way and uh, the declining birth rates mean that women should stay at the house and do their traditional roles more like all of those things are very interconnected and i think that's the reason uh that's the main reason why uh, you see so much of that overlap as well yeah and it's really um orientalism repackaged and internalized in a sense We've been talking about sort of ideas, representation, myth-making, but these concepts have consequences, right, in the material world. And Andrew, you wrote a piece about the recall campaign in Aichi. Can you speak about what this campaign is and the people involved in it and what, what's driving them? Okay. I guess to start from the, the beginning, there was an uh, international art festival in Aichi, called the Aichi Triennale, I think. Uh, and it was a, a art gallery that was basically bringing in a bunch of artists from around the world with the, with the idea of basically disseminating cutting-edge culture and art. And one of the, uh, or actually two, of the arts, of the pieces of art that were showcased there, uh, one being a statue of a comfort woman and another a video that included... A picture of the Showa Emperor being burned. Uh, those two were caught by basically the Japanese far right, specifically the the net far right, and basically the art exhibition got a bunch of death threats. Primarily, one guy actually threatened to bring in a gas can to the art exhibit, uh, which was in very poor taste because in 2019 we also had the uh, the Kyoto Animation arson attack. Um, but basically, they had to shut it down, and then it came back, and the art exhibit was partially funded by public funds from the Aichi government. And so because of that, a bunch of influential far-right far figures, specifically Dr. Takasu, who's supposed to be the owner of Takasu Clinics in Japan, which is a very big chain of plastic surgery clinics, uh, he basically started a campaign to petition for the Aichi governor to resign, or at least put it to a vote for him to resign. Uh, and he needed uh, a couple of votes, uh, a couple hundred thousand. He couldn't get there. He got about half. And then it turns out recently that uh, 80% of the signatures that he got for the petition uh, were fraudulent. They were mostly made by either a single person or a bunch of people that weren't registered to vote, so they didn't have the right to send those in. And now they may be facing criminal charges. And so the thing about, I guess, Dr. Takasu is that he is very, very well known for being racist, to put it bluntly, a Japanese nationalist. Uh, he's a historical revisionist. He believes that uh, the Nanking Massacre and the Holocaust never happened. Um... He believes that the the unit, uh, the Japanese unit, I forgot what number it was specifically, uh, but the one that uh, that researched bio seven thirty one. Yes, that one. Uh, 
the one that researched biochemicals uh, was actually supposed to uh, was actually doing like disease research and wasn't actually experimenting on people which is entirely false uh generally all around really bad person uh he also actually bought the emperor the showa emperor's memoirs for a couple hundred thousand dollars and those types of people are i think to, to i guess bring the topic back uh, the type of people that believe in the myth of samurai and believe in this in this idealized version of Japan and are also the ones that profit the most off of uh, things like cool Japan, right? This this image of cool Japan. So yeah, it's primarily the reason why I wrote that article to begin with. Yeah, and facts don't matter to them. It really shows they can't just... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, as long as their ideologies are fulfilled or their ideologies are justified, they will basically support any form of any story, any any quote unquote fact, regardless of if of, of how true it actually is or not. Kazuma, you yourself faced quite a backlash after you published your article about the ghost of Tsushima and your Twitter is set private for this reason if it's okay would you mind sharing the experience of facing the backlash oh sh- yeah sure definitely no it's okay i feel like i should talk about it because then people will kind of have a broader idea of like what actually happens in these circles um so andrew's had this happen too before is that when you're a japanese person who tweets in english people will try to find pictures of you and then perform phrenology on your face um, that was something that ended up happening to me as I wrote my Ghost of Tsushima piece, and yet people still refuse to acknowledge the irony of the character I have in my icon every time I post about this kind of stuff. Um, so, um, basically, what ended up happening was people got really mad at me for talking about um, pro-imperialist propaganda and media. Um, so, they went to my Twitter, and they tried to find pictures of me, that were just online. Uh, they went to my Instagram. They saw that I were po- that I was posting about Korean food that I had gone out to eat with my boyfriend. So everyone said that I was a secret Korean and I was basically trying to slander Japan. They were trying to locate the exact location where I was living and saying, oh no, maybe this person is half Japanese because they live in Dusseldorf. So that would logistically make sense. But they're also probably just Korean or Chinese and they're not actually Japanese. Some people uh, accused me of stealing my own picture, saying that I was a white man uh, living in Germany uh, under a pseudonym. I was getting people sending me... Yeah, that that's fucking hilarious. I, my German's so fucking bad. Um, sorry for all the cursing, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, I was getting emails from people through my personal and work emails. People were emailing my uh, one of my employers about this. And it was, it was all around... <sighs> If I wasn't so secure in my identity after having met people like Andrew who have a similar lived experience, I think it would have been really damaging to my psyche. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't. And with the cyberpunk piece, because the game wasn't received super well due to all of its technical issues, um, people weren't uh, being too nasty about it. Obviously, people are... One person said that they had to investigate whether or not I was actually Japanese because they couldn't believe that a Japanese person would write this. 
which is ridiculous in and of itself. And that, like, the harassment this time isn't as, like, half as bad as it was last time, but you definitely come under fire for talking about this kind of stuff. Just in general. It's not just me. It's people talking about things like Attack on Titan or any other kind of media that could lean into pro-imperialism or fascist sentiment. Um, Nobody in the English-speaking side of Twitter wants to listen to what you have to say. Though I would say that's also similar on the Japanese-speaking side of Twitter, because there was an entire hashtag dedicated to me there, uh, where people were, you know, calling me a secret Korean. Wow. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's incredible how, like, they can't possibly conceptualize this type of criticism of Japan coming from Japanese people themselves. They immediately think that you have to be foreign it also connects to how communism, anarchism, socialism, anti-racism, um, feminism, like any progressive uh, and revolutionary ideologies are seen as foreign. I heard a conspiracy theory that um, Black Lives Matter Japan is funded by the Chinese Communist Party. This constant association of leftism and liberatory politics with foreignness, reinforcing this idea that Japan is homogenous, harmonious, with no contradictions or divisions whatsoever. Exactly. It's very, I would describe it as almost, uh, it's tsugogai. You know, whenever someone that's Japanese does well, be it, you know, Murakami Haruki or, you know, Osaka Naomi, right? If anyone do, that's remotely Japanese does well, then Japanese people will praise them, right? Or to, uh, specifically conservatives and, and you know, right-wing Japanese people will praise them, saying they're one of us. But when it comes to those same exact people actually speaking out against it, like in Naomi Osaka's case, where she was, like, you know, wholeheartedly supporting BLM and saying that Japanese people need to understand what racism is and how it functions, immediately she's thrown to the dogs and is like, she's not Japanese. She's, you know, she's she's black. She's more American or more non-Japanese than she is Japanese. It's the same exact thing. Like, it, it happens everywhere, even remote, even if you're fully, or quote-unquote, fully Japanese, right? If you say something that doesn't, that you know, far-right people don't agree with, then you're automatically cast aside saying either it goes from, you know, are you Jap actually, like, full-blooded Japanese or not? And they're like, okay, you're full-blooded Japanese, but, you know, where did you go for education? You know, how long did you live in a certain place? And then it's like, okay, you, full you live your whole life in Japan, then, you know, what parties are you affiliated with? You know, what uh, you know what politics do you have personally it just keeps becoming a game of you know making it smaller and smaller and making the bar higher and higher to get to a point where they're like finally we have this evidence that this person isn't a japanese and essentially what they're saying is that you're you're hanichi right you're hikokumin you're not a japanese citizen if you don't do a certain thing or think a certain way and they can cast you aside and say there you're not a true Japanese person. Get out of here. It happens to me and cause all the time. Just the fact that my name, my first name is Andrew, right? I immediately apparently flick a switch in everyone's brain. And they're like, oh, since your name is Andrew, you can't be Japanese. When in reality, there's so many Japanese people with Anglicized names, right? That have English 
first names or English last names, but that doesn't make them any less Japanese. So, like, a lot of these people have very, like, narrow-minded, concrete understandings, and those things cannot crumble for them. They need to, they need to stand for any of their, uh, I guess, like, ways of thinking to, to even continue existing. Yeah, like, a lot of the comments I would receive, people would be like, well, <laughs> you may be Japanese, but you're not Japanese in your heart. And it's like, what is that even supposed to mean? Like, <laughs> uh. Having discussed all this, do you think video games can be a medium to promote radical politics? Totally. I think that there have already been, like, anti-imperialist games created by Japanese creators, um in the past decade or so or even independent games right but i think what people need to look out for most is not look at these triple a titles that are coming out and look at indie games that examine these themes properly video games and specifically games from specific eras will represent different social values or anxieties or storylines depending on who made it and at what time right so i think there's already like plenty of games that have this or can be an interactive medium to teach people about imperialism or anti-imperialism in media so i think it's possible and it's already been done we're just seeing a sudden resurgence of pro-imperialist pro-fascist propaganda in media given the state of things can you give any examples of these games um so I play the Final Fantasy series a lot, so I'd say like any of the Evilese Alliance games, like Final Fantasy Tactics, which has a very clear criticism of classism or Final Fantasy XII, where you literally fight against an imperialist force that wants to colonize most of the continent. I think those games do a really good job talking about those specific issues. They do have their caveats. Obviously, they're not perfect games, but I think they demonstrate these kinds of narratives very well within the genre. Yeah. I, I think um, in terms of indie games as well, a couple examples that I can give off of the top of my head would be a game called Going Under, which is about a intern that works for a startup and is, for the most part, kind of forced to do jobs that she doesn't really want to do or is, like, is even in her job description. Aside from that, I would also include the Umurangi Generation, which is yeah, also that, like a cyberpunk. That game's really good. Yeah, it's a cyberpunk indie indie game that is basically based on the anti-imperialist struggles of the people in the Southern Pacific, for example. Aside from that, honestly, a lot of AAA titles, I guess because of the way capitalism is, really, they try to broaden their demographic as widely as possible, and so they tend to kind of strip away a lot of these radical ideas which is why you don't really see a lot of radical politics or, or messages in AAA titles, at least overtly. In recent years, I could only consider, for example, The Outer Worlds to be a good title that tries to do that. But even then, it, it tends to take a lot of centrist, ultimately centrist messages in those games. And so, like with everything, there's a lot of liberalism that is involved in mainstream video games and mainstream video game discourse right now. Yeah, like I often find myself very frustrated with the limits that these cultural products face under capitalism. And, you know, I miss, you know, it's independent production or grassroots or like not mainstream production. Like there's less room to 
express uh, these views that are left of liberalism. And it, it is a sort of lesson that in a society where profit is the ultimate motive, your creativity as filmmaker or game producer is really controlled. And they have to abide by you know, what is considered acceptable and whatnot. And a lot of times these products... They are expressions of like our desire for change, you know, more just world. But at the same time, there's a force at work to co-opt them and make it palatable to the status quo and not threatening. But I think it's important to uh, for us as cultural critics to really use these materials to educate people, you know, while also pointing out the limits of it and, you know, how can we do better in creating a truly revolutionary culture. But it's been great talking to you too. Before you go, can you tell us uh, where listeners can find your work? Uh, yeah, so you can find me at JusticeKazi underscore on Twitter and at JusticeKazi on Twitch. You can also find my translation work at Silicon Era, and you can find more of my political-based uh, features on Polygon. All right, and uh, you can find me on Twitter as well at uh, uh, Woodhouse, that's W-O-U-L-D, h-a-u-s uh i can also stream on twitch at the under the same name and i also write for unseen japan uh, as a contributing writer okay great uh, thank you so much again for both of you kazuma and andrew for coming on today and um thank you to all the listeners uh, we'll see you in the next episode thank you for having me yes thank you so much